Hi, I'm Christopher Ward, and you are listening to Talking Blues, so let's talk. It occurred to me that when I made the request to interview you a couple months ago, I had no idea that um, you were going to be inducted into the Songwriters Hall of Fame, so congratulations on that. Thank you. Neither did I. <laughs> it, it, was, it was a really delightful surprise. And, and then I wasn't allowed to tell anybody, so that's even worse. <laughs> but it is official now, right? It is absolutely official. In fact, we're doing a, a kind of an acoustic uh, performance of Black Velvet on Monday that will be part of the induction. And it's, uh, it's pretty cool. I'm going to have a guitar player. Uh, Justin Abaddon, who's a beautiful musician, who you may know, and Davide Dorenzo on uh, percussion. And then Davna Doyle and Serena Ryder, who I know you know, uh, are going to be uh, accompanying me vocally. So it should be pretty cool. So are you going to do that in town or is this over Zoom? Or Yes. Oh, no, no. I, I, would, I wouldn't want to do any attempt at live music on Zoom. Uh, <laughs> No, we've all had to live with Zoom, and it has been our friend, but I think we're probably all a little bit exhausted with it. No, I'm in Toronto right now, so... Um, oh, okay. Yeah, yeah, so uh, we're going to do it at the Revolution Studios. Nice. So I know yeah. that you've probably asked this many, many times in the last few weeks or since it's been announced, but how does that, how does that feel to be inducted into the Hall, Songwriters Hall of Fame? It, it feels amazing, Michael. It's like, um, it's the kind of thing you don't even dare dream of when you're a kid first getting a guitar and writing songs. I mean, you might think, gee, I'd love to hear my song on the radio someday, but usually that's about as far as it goes. And then maybe if you do achieve some success, you might think, wow, I'd love to have a hit song. And then you kind of go from there. But the idea of it being in a hall of fame, I don't know. It's, there's a bit of a pedestal factor there that's a little odd for me to get used to. But, um, you know, I know that the song has touched so many people through the years. As you can imagine, you know, there's a lot of feedback that I get for having written Black Velvet. Mm -hmm. It's usually part of every introduction. It's like, oh, hey, he's the guy that wrote Black Velvet. It's usually that's, that's how I get introduced to people, um, which is okay because it's, it's a good song. But... Um, yeah, uh, it, I mean, it's a huge honor. I mean, uh, if you look at the list of names of songs and people that have been inducted into the Canadian Songwriters Hall of Fame, it's a pretty special place. For sure. So that kid who picked up the guitar and started writing songs, when did that love of writing songs start with you? Well, I was a music junkie from the time I was a little kid. Um and when I was a teenager, it just got even worse. And then the Beatles came along, and literally, I don't think my parents saw me again for five years, you know? <laughs> um, and uh, we we moved from Toronto to Winnipeg at one point. And I was really unhappy about this because I had friends. You know, I was in grade 10. I had lots of friends. I was starting to get into going to clubs, although it illegally you know and see bands and it, you know my whole life was kind of unfolding and he announced one night at dinner that we were moving to Winnipeg and I guess to bribe me to accept the whole idea he went out and bought me my first guitar <laughs> so all in all <laughs> all in all I think it kind of worked out all right 
uh, you know, and I wrote poetry when I was in high school and, you know, plunked away on the guitar, you know, playing Bob Dylan songs and that kind of thing. And it wasn't really till, I guess, till I was in college at Trent University that I started to actually write songs that had the shape of a song, you know? Um, what did you go to Trent University for? Uh, well, I had this idea that I was going to be a psychiatrist. <laughs> so <laughs> that was that was my, uh, my goal. Um, but then I found out that there was some science involved in it. And that was... <laughs> Not gonna, not really gonna work that well for me. I found out the hard way. I failed uh, my first year math, and um, actually, my my old friend Stephen Stone, who you may know, um, was at Trent. That's where we met. Uh, Stephen's a music business attorney. He's uh, the head of Epitome Pictures, which produced Degrassi. He's done a lot of things, but. Um, one of the most noble things he's ever done over the years is he spent the summer teaching me first year math so that I could pass and move on to my second year, at which time I had the good sense to drop math and, and become the literature and psychology student that I was always meant to be. <laughs> and you also a radio DJ, is it on campus radio, is that correct? Yeah, Stephen and I actually, um, together with uh, another fellow named Peter Northrop at Trent University, started the Trent radio s station. Oh. And it was broadcast on one of the local stations in Peterborough. And then I got a gig doing the all-night show on CKBT in Peterborough, which was the chum outlet there at the time. And uh, so I was going to school in the daytime and being an all-night radio DJ. Well, you can imagine which one suffered the most. You know? <laughs> <laughs> so. Did you ever think about going? I mean, you kind of did, but did you ever think about going into radio as a as a career? Uh, well, I mean, as they say, I, I knew that I was crazy about music, and you know, I, I don't think Marco that I had any sense that there was a living to be made writing songs. <laughs> I mean, we didn't have anybody in my family who'd ever done anything in that universe, you know, in, in the world of entertainment. The closest was my Uncle Bill, who was an ad guy, and he was a very creative guy and a real inspiration to me. But, you know, it was like I, nothing you would even dare to dream about. And unless you had a role model, you could go, oh, well, look, see, here's the path that person took with their career. Um, that didn't exist for me. So I just sort of had to make it up as I went along, and radio was just one step along the way, I guess. Okay, and then and acting for some reason was also another step along the way, or is that something you just kind of stumbled onto? It's showbiz, Marco. It's in my blood. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I, you know, over time, I think I've come to look at myself as an entertainer, and it, that, that gives me sort of a lot of freedom to do a lot of different things, whether it's, you know, working in television or working on stage, as I did with the Second City Touring Company. Um, writing songs, performing those songs. Uh, yeah, that's that's my overview. But when you went to the Second City Touring Company, did you have a sense that this is something you would pursue? Or was it is it, was it based out of music and, and, and a way you could play your music to people? No. Um, I got into that because I'd gone on a tour of Western Canada with my band that had ended disastrously while I was out there. And I came back home to figure out what I was going to do with the rest of my life. And um, in the meantime, I 
just did some things to enhance my abilities as an entertainer. I went to the Second City um, workshop program. I took dance classes. I did a variety of things. And they came to me at the workshop program and asked me if I would audition for the touring company, which was the last thing I thought about doing. But I think if there's anything that's the hallmark of a, a successful career, it's your ability to improvise. And I don't mean improvise in the Second City sense. I mean just be able to kind of roll with what you're given and uh, recognize a good opportunity when it comes to you. I have to ask, and you don't have to talk about it if you don't want to, but this disastrous ending to your musical career or to your oh, band. Okay. Yeah, <laughs> can, yeah. can we talk about that a little bit? Tell me, at this point, you don't have a sure. record label deal, right? Like this is before your label deal with Warners? Uh, no, this was after my label deal with Warner. Okay. And I had signed a deal for one album with an independent company out of Edmonton called House of Lords Records. And uh, yeah, I know. And um, yeah, well, the tour, a few things sort of happened all at once. Um, I was playing a club in Saskatoon. And at the end of the week, the proprietors of the club decided that they didn't think I deserved to get paid for what I had done for the last week. Wow. So I had no money and I had band members who needed to be paid and, you know, we had to put gas in the truck to move on to our next gig. And right at that time, the rest of the tour got canceled. The whole tour just fell apart. And also the van that we had was no longer roadworthy. So it was just this, you know, collision of, of, of disastrous uh, road stories and um, yeah, that was the, the but, gist of it. But you must have been good enough to be signed by a label and and to tour across Canada. Good enough? I mean, I guess. <laughs> Just <laughs> I long pause there. <laughs> well, I don't. I don't even know what to think about that. Um, I mean, did you? Know, you what was your confidence level? I didn't plan this. Stuff. Let me put it that way. I, I didn't intend for these things to happen, but they happened, and and they gave way to other things, which in fact became really good things. Like the, when I did the Second City run, you know, at one point I realized I'd been doing it for a little over a year, and I thought, you know, this is not heart and soul who I am or what I want to do. And at that point, um, I'd met Alana, and. Uh, we started working together on her music and I really wanted to just put myself back hundred percent into music. And on the last show that we did at the second city at the old fire hall theater, um, I've told the story before, but I got three things. I got uh, an Elvis bust as a gift from my fellow actors, a pie in the face because that's the second city tradition. And I got an offer from John Martin who became the uh, head of uh, much music. And his offer consisted of, I got something for you, Christopher. Come on to my office on Monday. That, that's, that was a big you know, statement from John. <laughs> the offer was to host an all-night video show called City Limits on Fridays and Saturday nights from midnight till 6 o'clock in the morning, which nine months later became much music. So who knew? <laughs> but when you got the, what do you think it was about what you was it that night that he saw you and thought this is the guy for much music or for city limits? No, he came down to see me to specifically, you know, make an offer. I think to say, well, let's get together and talk about something, which we did. Okay, so at this point, you, and he knew me. John, I mean, John knew me from before. He, um, I'm trying to think. <laughs> this is. 
I guess it's a sordid tale, but you know, uh, I used to live in this house on McPherson Avenue. We called it the Chateau de Gonzo. <laughs> it was uh, a crazy house with like some seven or eight people living there. And um, John, <laughs> we'd be sitting in the kitchen, you know, drinking Heineken and listening to Steely Dan or whatever. And um, John would come in down the alleyway and in through the back door for his nightly assignation with Tammy, who eventually became his wife. But at the time, she had a boyfriend who was working while when John came over. <laughs> so this is terrible. I feel like I'm revealing family secrets. <laughs> anyway, I got to hang out with John. Like John would always stop in the kitchen on the way up to Tammy's room and, you know, have a beer with me and whoever else was hanging out. And we'd talk about music and, you know, so on and so forth. Anyway, so I knew John. So he came down to, to see me do the Second City gig. Okay, so you also thought that you wanted to concentrate on music or get back into music. But you, at this point, you're thinking get back into music as a songwriter. Well, you know, I mean, it's all based around songs. If you don't have songs, then you're, you don't have anything to perform. So I, I was working with Atlanta. That was one, you know, sort of pathway in that, that we were both pursuing hard. But also I started writing songs and demoing songs for myself with a thought about maybe going back out on the road. And I did do one other tour, um, which actually was much better. I toured the Maritimes and then took Alana with me as my opening act. And uh, funny, I said, for some reason I was thinking about that. Oh, I know, because there was a photograph of us uh, in this little promotion thing that, that had some photos of some of my old bands. And uh, I was remembering the songs that she used to sing. She used to do uh, Mystery Achievement by The Pretenders and Think by Aretha Franklin. And I think maybe she did I Can't Stand the Rain, but she just phew, tore into that stuff. She was a great singer right from the beginning. So did you know, did you recognize her talent immediately? Yeah, we went on a date together and she, when we went, to, I went to drop her off and she invited me in and I thought, yeah. And, uh, and then she pulled out her guitar and started playing some songs that she'd written. And I went, yeah, but uh, yeah, for a different reason, you know, uh, she was, yeah, she just had it all going on. And, um, so we became soon afterwards, a, a couple and a musical partnership. So was it easy to write for her? Cause I know that on the, at least on the first two albums and there might be more, but I know that your songs are all over the place. So to write for a female singer, is that difficult? I've spent my entire career doing it I guess for different true. female artists. I mean, dominantly, you know, the songs that I have written that have been recorded and heard or done well have been with female acts. And there are some male artists in there, but mostly, mostly women have recorded my songs. So maybe it's because I have three sisters. I don't know. <laughs> but... Uh, Writing for Atlanta was great. I mean, she was incredibly inspiring. I mean, it was that voice, for one thing. And she also just had such unbelievable faith in me as a songwriter. And that, you know, you can't buy that. That's, that's the jet fuel that will get, you know, creative work done, is when somebody else literally would look at me in the eye almost daily and say, you're going to write me a hit song. I know it. And she meant it, and I knew she meant it. So, and and how that was me how was your confidence as a songwriter at that point? Um, 
I mean, I to me, I just was a songwriter. I I definitely long since come to the understanding that that was who I was. It was the thing that I I thought I did best. It was the thing that I loved the most. And when I felt it had been done well or successfully, uh, just in terms of the quality of the work, there was no feeling like it. So, you know, I was just getting up and writing songs. That was what I did. And um, a lot of those songs were for Alana. Your time at Much Music and before that at City TV, where does that fall into doing this? I mean, were you writing songs at that point while you were doing all-nighters and promoting other musicians? Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. <laughs> Amazingly enough, I was just like, doing, I mean, the all-night show was only on the weekends. So we had all week long to kind of work on the music, and we did. And then it took us a while to get her a deal. It took us about seven years of you know, banging our heads against the doors of record companies. And they all said no. And finally, uh, one gentleman at Atlantic Records in New York said the big yes, and that was that. And did you not produce those albums? I'm the executive producer, which is different. David Tyson is the producer, and his uh, wonderful creative stamp is all over that music. And it's one of the reasons why those records, I believe, still sound good to this day is because of Dave. Okay, so your time at Much Music and the encounters you had with a ridiculous amount of great musicians, um, how did that impact you as a songwriter? It's a good question. I, it's a little bit elusive. Um, I mean, I'm a sponge, so I, I kind of learn from anything, anywhere. I'm always just taking things in. Uh, whether it's ideas for songs or just theories on life, whatever. And then I process them and then they become mine in some way. Um, So actually, specifically towards the end of my time at Much, I was working on what was to be a series on songwriting. And for about a year, I'd been interviewing some of just the world's greatest songwriters, every opportunity I had. A lot of times... That wasn't the mandate of the interview from the record company's point of view. The artists would be coming through town. They'd have a new album or whatever to promote, or they were on a tour or whatever the case was. But I would always say, well, look, can I do a second interview and just be about songwriting because I'm saving it for this series? And at that point, you know, the, I knew the labels well enough and the people at Much were happy to give me that freedom, which was great. So I started accumulating all of these incredible interviews. And, uh, and then... <laughs> Bizarrely uh, and happily, uh, Atlanta had a hit song. And um, as a result, I quit my job. But before I did, I did a one-hour special with those interviews on songwriting uh, for the new music. And uh, yeah, it was that was a lot of fun. So yes, in, the, in terms of a long answer to your question, I mean, I did unquestionably learn from those people because I asked them what I wanted to know. I didn't, I didn't have to worry about asking, you know, say, I mean, I went to Willie Dixon's house. Willie Dixon is one of the preeminent writers of American blues music for people who don't know him. Um, I, I don't, I can't think of a more important figure in American blues, um, certainly the Chicago style in particular, than Willie Dixon, who wrote and produced for Howlin' Wolf and for Muddy Waters and wrote 
I Just Want to Make Love to You, Seventh Son, Little Red Rooster. He wrote, he wrote a song called You Need Love, which Led Zeppelin appropriated and turned into Whole Lot of Love, but which legally was settled in his favor a little later. <laughs> but there's a case where, you know, I went to his place um, when I was on another a trip for another reason to L.A., and my cameraman, Basil Young, and I went to Willie Dixon's house and sat there for like an hour and a half just talking with him about music and how he's done what he's done in his life. And I mean, it was just an absolutely extraordinary, indelible experience for me having that opportunity. Um, and it all factors in over time, doesn't it? For sure. But do you think, is there anybody that, any words that come to mind that, that might have changed the way you might have approached songwriting? through these interviews that you've done? Well, in there, it's all tiny incremental things. It's like, um, you know, Paul McCartney talking about, he, he was on his way to John Lennon's place for a songwriting session and he had a driver and they were chatting on the way because it was quite a long drive. And the, you know, uh, Paul was like, oh, so, uh, you know, Hey, Alf, how's it going? And Alf is like, oh, you know, Paul, working eight days a week. And McCartney, like, is mimes with his eyes getting big and mimes, like, scratching it down on a piece of paper. So it's kind of more like a reminder to always have your songwriter antennae up and be listening for little bits of things that can come flying at you and you don't want to miss. Um, I remember Rodney Crowell, who's a wonderful country writer. Um, he, he was married to Roseanne Cash. And, and they did a song together that I think he wrote the song, but um, he told this story to me about how they'd gone on a trip to New York together and she'd suggested they go to a Broadway musical. And he's like, really? And she was amazed that he had never been to a Broadway musical. And he said, but he, what he gathered from it was how conversation can fit into the song form. And he went away and wrote a song about two people meeting up in New York. And he wrote it from the, his point of view and the her point of view, and then constructed a song from that conversation. And I thought, wow, that's a really interesting, unique way to form a song. That's, you know, structurally. And it was certainly nothing that I'd ever tried doing. So you, you, you absorb little, little bits and pieces along the way, and then they, they come out not looking the same as they went in looking as you can imagine are you still actively writing songs on a daily weekly basis right now yeah i'm a songwriter michael that's my i love doing it i mean the new album that i have out has um i would say i think it's like five songs that i wrote all in a relatively short period of time um just prior to the well and, and at the beginning of the the pandemic era um, and then I went into the studio to record the album in August. So the songs had been written in the year preceding that. And a lot of them I wrote on my own, which was kind of new for me because, you know, I've been very much geared to writing collaboratively based on opportunity, where there's an artist who needs a song or, you know, the artist will come over and you'll work on something with them, which is always a, a way better scenario in terms of getting the song on the record. Obviously, if the artist has their own involvement, they've got to, I got some skin in the game, right? Right. Um, but it's, it's. I guess it's who I am. It's how I, how I, process life is through songs, and uh, I, you know, I lost the plot there for a little while for sure. I, I think you know, 
mean, I, my wife and I separated like seven and a half years ago and, uh, you know, that was just, that just drove a truck right through my creative life. Some people think that when you have a, a dramatic experience like that, you're just going to, your notebook's going to be on fire, but <laughs> a lot of things are on fire, but not in a good way. <laughs> I can imagine. Um, but it, people do react differently. And so what got you back into writing? Just the inevitable. The fact that there were guitars and, and an empty notebook in my room, you know, and something had to be done with them. So I just, you know what, I think I started playing again. Usually I would bank ideas, Mako, and I would like stash them and then draw on them as needed for opportunities for projects and things but for some reason i just started following through on the song ideas that i was coming up with and presto they became full complete songs and they didn't really necessarily sound like they were written for anybody or any given project so i just kept going and you know then i'd accumulated a bunch of songs and i got together with my two producer friends, Aaron Chaturvedi and Luke McMaster, who co-produced the record. And we wrote some, some new songs for the record as well, three new ones. And, um, you know, I felt I was alive as a songwriter again in a way that I hadn't been for a really, really long time. What's it like when you're sitting there driving and all of a sudden one of your songs comes on the radio? What's that feeling like? It's about as good as it gets. It's an unbelievable feeling, and it never gets old. Um, I mean, I'll never forget the first time I heard one of my songs on the radio. It was some early stuff I did in the late 70s with uh, Jack Richardson producing. And, um, I mean, I was so excited I had to pull over. I had to just pull over on the side of the road, throw it into park, and just sit there and stare at the radio as if it was like this magic device that was speaking to only me. <laughs> and um, yeah, I mean, it was, I mean, like for example, when Black Velvet happened, I can remember um, I was driving to Los Angeles from Toronto and, you know, I was constantly listening to the radio and dialing around to find the local stations just because you get so much regional flavor from listening to local radio and um you know like you hear gospel radio here you'll hear country radio here you'll hear r&b radio here and it's just you know it's such a rich tapestry of of sound that america produces uh, and it's all localized but i can remember i was driving gosh it was like right after Black Velvet hit number one in the U.S. on the Billboard chart. And uh, and I'd hear it on one station, I'd be so excited, and then then it would end, and I'd switch over to another station, and it would be on that one. And I remember I used to, you know, that was one of the big things with my collaborator. It's like, I got a double. I got a, you know, <laughs> not just a single, but a double. It was like, you know, we were so childish about it, but it, it was, you know, it's incredibly exciting. Well, Yeah. One of my favorite songs of yours is Beautiful Goodbye. I don't know if that was a big oh, hit, but what a stunning song that is. Thank you very much. I, I love that song. That's one of my favorite songs I've ever written. It did very well. It was a hit in the UK. And I think it was, 
I wasn't like a number one or anything, but it was a hit in, in Canada as well for uh, Amanda. She had a number of songs from that first album, of course, and that was one of them. Um, I mean, that song was really hard to write. It, it, Dave had a piece of music and he played it for me and it was really complete. A lot of times, you know, we'll present sort of fragments to each other. It's like, here, I got this little thing. What do you think? And then we'll kind of bounce it back and forth. But this was complete, like fait accompli track, full instrumentation. The melody was completely laid out to the point that I knew exactly where all the accents were. I mean, even the rhyme scheme was sort of implicit in what he had done. And that's a hard, a hard thing to do. It's a heavy lift as a songwriter to wedge something into it to a structure that is so tight. But the thing was, where normally I might go, oh, can you give me some freedom, some flexibility to move things around to fit a lyric idea? In this case, I knew that wasn't gonna fly because Dave was, you know, he was very attached to this piece of music and rightfully so, because it was so beautiful. And that's how it hit me. And, and so it took me a few months to get the lyric for that song right. Wow. But you know what? It's like I, you think about people who, who insist that the best ideas come right away and come quickly. And if, you know, if I don't finish it in half an hour, that's not worth it. It's like, mm, no, take your time. You know, you, you can get, you, you, if you can make it better, then do make it better. It's always better to have, you know, one timeless piece of work than 10 that are like just good. That's that's how I feel anyway. You also wrote a bunch of books. How's the writing process different? I mean, it must be really different to be a songwriter versus an author. Well, I stumbled into it. Like like everything else, Mako, I just like fell into it without really thinking, oh, there's you know, there's any kind of lines on the road here that I have to follow. I just did it. We um my wife and I, uh my wife at the time and uh our daughter, who was five, moved to Paris uh, in in the year two thousand and one. I wondered about and, the French um, or the the, the Fran- reference to France in those books. Oh, in the books, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah we, I mean, I've been work, working and writing in LA for about well about eleven years, and we just went we need to do something different. We need an adventure in our lives. And, and we took a holiday first time we'd you know, gone away without our daughter. She stayed with her grandmother and we went to Paris and literally we were having our first cafe creme of the rest of our lives. And my ex said to me, we should live here. And I'm like, yeah, good idea. You know, and of course we were just jet lagged out of our brains. Right. But all week we walked around going, of course, oh, you know, when we when we go out for dinner, we're going to go here or this is there. Oh, that's our apartment. This is just like a little joke, right, that a couple could have. Except what happens? We got home and like the joke just wouldn't go away. We kept thinking, well, why not? You know, so uh, <laughs> we sold our house and we rented an apartment in the 8th district of Paris sent our daughter to the Lycée Francais for kindergarten. So she had a bit of a foundation when we moved, packed up and moved to Paris. (laughs) And um, while I was there, I mean, I did some songwriting. I mean, I'm I'm not, first of all, 
there's not much that I can contribute when they need lyrics in French, but also French pop music's wacky. I don't, I don't really get it. <laughs> um, and so I, you know, I found myself thinking, well, what am I going to do? You know, we're here and we didn't put a date on leaving. We just were here and it was like, okay, this is all good. And, uh, I thought, well, I've been reading to my daughter and noticed that there really weren't very many books where there was a, a girl as the hero of a, like an adventure story. You know, there was kind of like Pippi Longstocking and the Secret Garden and all these like tr traditional kind of things, Alice in Wonderland, but not in the modern, more modern sense of like a real, you know, not gritty, but just adventurous kind of child. So I thought I'll write one and I'll make my daughter the hero of the book. Her middle name is Mackenzie. So the book became Mac in the City of Light. And it's just a fun adventure. But then I got a publisher for it when we moved back to Canada and then they wanted a sequel. So I wrote that. And then I wrote another work of um, fiction that was a, sort of a parody of the um, American pop music business at the time of the millennium. And then... Uh, some years later, I decided to chronicle the early years at Much Music. And that was a totally different uh, kettle of fish because there's a little bit of an obligation to tell the truth, you know? Like when you're doing fiction, you're on your own. You also got everybody else's point of view, too. Well, I felt that I felt because the book had not been written, because nobody else had tried to do this, um, it was, you know, on me to to get this, the best stories out there and, and to tell the truth and to, to as closely as possible represent the spirit and, and the facts of, of what happened in those early days of much. Because I think it was a remarkable time in Canadian broadcast history. And I don't, you know, it's hard to look back, right? Because when you're in the middle of something and it's just moving at, you know, 100 miles an hour, you're not stopping and going, well, I wonder what the significance of this in the long term will be. You just don't do that. You just wake up in the morning, you go to work and you race through whatever you got to do and then you go home and sleep. Um, but uh, at a certain point, I think I realized that this was something that needed to have a longer life than just a few random YouTube clips, you know. And uh, so I tried to try to document it in that book. Wow. I mean, it, it had such an impact on the Canadian music scene and, and all the bands that Much Music introduced and all the people who were fans of music and how, you know, how, what kind of exposure they got to that kind of music. So it, it is huge. Yeah. And it's a great book. I, I was just reading it recently. So thank you for that. Thank I know you. we have to wrap up because you have tons of interviews and stuff. So let me ask you one final question. Tell me about your relationship to a song. Can you summarize that? I mean, you're somebody who's written a lot of songs and who's also had a lot of success. And I don't know if it's all about success, but tell me about what your relationship to a song is. Well, it's not about success at all in the conventional sense of, you know, how much money does it make? Um, a successful song for me, and I've got a bunch that nobody's ever heard, <laughs> um, is something that's well-written, that has its own small nugget of truth at the core that hopefully touches people. Um, I don't, after all these years of writing songs for different people, you know, whether it's like a 15 year old Hilary Duff or whether it's Diana Ross or whether it's Rock Voisin or Colin James or Amanda Marshall, 
you know, they all have very distinctive um, points of view as artists. And my job to come in and write songs for them or with them is to enhance that point of view and help sort of, you know, give them access to their to their audience through my contributions to their work. But the vision is theirs overall. So there, there's quite a strict role. When I was writing songs for myself, for this album, for example, um, I had a little more freedom. And I think the songs might be a little more, I, I don't know, literary, it's just maybe not the right word, but um, they're not the kind of songs that somebody's gonna come along and pick up and go, oh, this would be great for so-and-so. They're a little more obscure in some ways. So there's no one pattern. There's no one archetypical song for me that's like, oh, that's my idea of a song. It's just, if it moves you as a listener, you know, whether it's your heart or your mind or your feet, whatever it moves, um, then it's successful. And if it has some ability to endure the way that Black Velvet does or Beautiful Goodbye, then that's, um, that's something, you know, worth celebrating and hanging on to. For sure. And, and so I hope you enjoy your induction into the Songwriters Hall of Fame. Congratulations once thank again. You. And thank you so much for doing this. Amazing. Oh, you're, you're welcome, Marco. This was a fun, this was a fun one to do. <laughs> uh, I don't very often just get to ramble about songwriting. <laughs> you indulge me. Thank you so much. <laughs> thank you. Thank you.